You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Good morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 58, so if, uh, if you've got a Bible or an electronic device, uh, go to Isaiah 58. If you open your Bible roughly in the middle, you'll be pretty near. Um, the, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the need for us as individuals and as a church to have open hearts and open homes. We've been in a series called Refocus about repositioning ourselves just at the beginning of this year and decade in front of God and saying, okay, God, speak into our lives, speak into my life, uh, because I want to be in step with the Holy Spirit, particularly if the gospel's under threat, I want to stick close to the conquering king. It's important that we care, that we love deeply, and, and as, as a result of that, that we're invitational people. Uh, and that looks different for everybody here. Some people are like Eddie, and they'll just invite everybody they see, and Eddie's never afraid to open up his mouth and talk. For others of you, that might be a really a difficult thing, but we're not asking you to go on the street and shout, come to church with me, you know, just the people that you know. And, and if, they, if church is a step too far from them, uh, for them at the minute, invite them to, invite them to like, craft club. I, invite them to a home group. I, invite them to, if we organize a walk, you know, invite them to that. These things are there to be invitational uh, if church itself is too threatening. And we're not inviting them to a club or a lifestyle or traditions or you know, a meeting or a set of rules. Uh, for belonging. There's, there's no foosty, irrelevant, cobwebbed religion here. We're inviting them to a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who is victorious, who is glorious. Um, so we want them to meet with the one who already knows us fully and loves us fully. We are fully known, nothing hidden, and fully loved, nothing held back from his love for us. And that means that despite our sin and our dirt, and our self-interest, and our shame. He has loved us and moved to rescue us, to save us. What do we mean by being saved? God loved you and I and every human being who ever lived so fully and so deeply that he gave his son, Jesus, to die in our place, debt paid in full. And anyone who believes in him is rescued from spiritual death and given eternal life. Uh, and the activation is belief, it's faith there. Not to die, but live. That, to me, is the definition of being saved. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to be dead, I was dead, and now I'm alive. Amen. That is what we mean by being saved. Despite all of my wrongdoing, despite my bitterness, my selfishness, God has moved towards me to restore, redeem, and rescue, even when I was helpless. More than helpless, downright resistant to him. And when we really encounter this Jesus, not a tradition, not a preference, but a person, everything changes. Everything changes and nothing remains the same. And there is always, always evidence that follows. Always. Our thinking, our behavior, our habits, our actions, they all change as we encounter Jesus. Now, perhaps that's rapid and perhaps that's like a, a trickle of change. So, so don't be sitting there this morning beating yourself up because you don't think you're changing fast enough and am I really safe? Because for some people, those changes are rapid. 
For other people, those changes are, are like massage changes instead in their lives. And, and actually, all of us still have things that need the touch of God to change. But you can't help it. It becomes as natural as breathing to be transformed. And that is true religion. Its foundation is a relationship, not with a tradition, not with a religion, but its foundation of true religion is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that has been initiated and purchased and fueled and resourced by him, by grace, completely unearned, completely undeserved. There is not one thing that you have done to merit God's favor being poured out in your life. Not one thing have you done that has made God go, well, you're a good one, I'm going to save you. He moved to you while you were an enemy with him. So as we go to Isaiah 58, by way of a brief intro, this is God's legitimate complaint in this chapter, legitimate complaint about the hijacking of religion. And he confronts this time and time and time again. He confronts the two-faced, the pretentious, the, the stale kind of faith that the Pharisees were famously known for. He confronts this. If you look at where Jesus is most angry towards people, it's not to the prostitute, to the tax collector, to the sinner. He's most angry towards those who stand up and profess something but don't live up to it. And there's no heart involved. He calls them whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but they stink of death in the center. And this passage also highlights the wonderful result of when true religion is in full swing in our hearts and in our lives. So let's go to Isaiah. Uh, We'll start at verse 1. Shout it aloud. Actually, that means with the throat. It's kind of like with everything you've got. Give yourself a sore throat. Shout it. That's how important this is. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted? They say, and you've not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You can't fast a day and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for the bowing of one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression... 
with a pointing finger and malicious talk. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noon day. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. May the Lord bless this word. Amen. Amen. Look around the world. Look at the libraries. You can find books on world religions. There are multiple religions around the world, but I want to propose to you today that there are only two. There are only two religions, false and true. And all false religion have the same characteristics, and there is only one true religion. One is a practice, the other is a promise. One is man-initiated, the other is God-initiated. One is about regulation, the other is about relationship. One's about chasing an ideology, which often is called God. The other is about God bringing himself to us. One is having to prove ourselves acceptable, worthy, righteous. The other, he makes us acceptable, worthy, and he clothes us in his righteousness. One forces us to try to achieve. The, the other, God achieves on our behalf. One says, earn favor, be good enough, fit in, behave yourself in order to belong. The other pours out unmerited favor, declares you good enough, and adopts you, and then transforms your behavior from the inside out. Which would you want? <laughs> False religion. It's all about ritual and reward, performance-related pay, if you like. It's all about you do this, you achieve this. In a sense, it's the difference between seeing God as a father or as an employer. Because if I see God like an employer, then God owes me something. He owes me wages. And so I perform, and God puts into my bank account, that's seeing God as an employer, see God as a father, then all of his storehouses are open to me. Uh, and he will hold no good thing back. Because a good father, when asked for a loaf of bread, does not give a stone or a scorpion or a snake. He gives good things. In false religion, either you realize that you can never hit the mark you can never hit the standard that is demanded and are devastated, disenfranchised and reject everything without any thought or question, just entirely re reject religion altogether. Or you live in the arrogant ignorance thinking that somehow you are a legend, that you are deserving of what is rightfully yours. You are near perfection and everybody else is the problem. To hell with them. That's the mentality. I might not be there yet, but at least I'm better than dot, dot, dot. That's what false religion creates in our hearts. In false religion, you can actually behave as long, any way that you please as long as you maintain the ritual and, and the standards and the requirements. Make the grades, do the right things, say the right things, use the right formulas. Do that and you can behave however you want. It doesn't matter what you've done as long as you obey. But then 
you get disgruntled and you get unsettled if things don't go your way. God, why have we fasted and you've not seen it? Come on, God. I'm doing all this stuff for you. Why aren't you sorting out my pay? Why aren't you sorting out my relationships? Why, why aren't you sorting out these circumstances that are horrendous in my life? I'm doing things for you, God. Come on, get a move on. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Look how humble I am, God. Why have we performed and, and not received the expected reward? Pay me. False religion tolerates everything that doesn't conflict with its own values. But it is ultimately self-seeking, self-exalting. And if there is difference, it creates hatred. In false religion, to disagree is to be an enemy. Just to disagree. Not to be violent, not to be cruel, but just to disagree. You're an enemy. False religion is stuck up, elitist, scornful, derogatory, soul-crushing, intolerant, and bigoted. That's false religion. And the irony is that those stuck in false religion often fire that exact accusation at those who are redeemed and rescued and living out true religion through a relationship with Christ. It's the exact indictment that they throw at the church with bitter scorn. And at times, perhaps, maybe too many, there are those who would call themselves Christians who act exactly in that way. But actually, I want to put it to you this morning that some of the biggest perpetrators of this kind of false religion are actually the secularists, the humanists, and the atheists. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm not afraid to say that this morning. Because they say, you either do it our way or you're hateful. I will be labelled one day a hate preacher. That's not looking at the way that I love people who, who have a different opinion to me or have a different lifestyle to me and don't line up with how I see things. Because if I'm being scornful, if I'm being cruel, if I'm being wicked towards them, then that's false religion. And it's no different. But the thing is, I can be loving and say lovingly, I disagree with you. And in society's sight, that is hate preaching. And it's wrong. It's wicked. It's a distortion of the truth, and it's trying to close down free speech. They can't stand the concept that they could be wrong or that they could be something higher or someone higher than themselves and their own morals and values, higher than mankind. And so, in secularism, humanism, and atheism, man becomes God. Man becomes the priority, and all other rivals must be silenced. I wonder, if you're not afraid of something, why do you feel it has to be silenced? So I want to encourage you, believers, this morning, you don't need to be afraid. Because you stand in victory, the victory of Jesus Christ. Uh, but at the same time, as we don't stand afraid, we don't stand with scorn, we don't stand with callous hearts, we don't stand looking just to try and crush people because of their errant views. We want to love Welcome, open hearts, open homes. But the result of false religion is scorn, derision, mockery, cruelty, fear-mongering and hate. It's drenched in insecurity. It's like a playground bullying. That's what it becomes. False religion has a God. It might be an ideology, but it is their God. And it's a thinly veiled, harsh taskmaster in whatever capacity it comes. 
who needs to be pacified, never satisfied. That's what false religion does. You can never live up to it. No matter what the view, opinion, God is. Uh, and actually, false religion in whatever form it takes will never get you anywhere that you want to be or that you need to be. It will never deliver you to the right address. It's powerless. It has no saving value. You will live your life and you will die. That's it. It's constricting. It's full of legalism. It's full of hypocrisy. It's full of self-righteousness and self-interest. And it's all based upon works. But here's where I love it gets to this. True religion. True religion is about grace. The undeserved, unearned, unmerited favour of God poured out by grace alone. And you see it in this passage even before the cross. And, and if you look on to Isaiah 61, you see the promise of the cross on its way. You see grace waiting in the wings. I'm coming. I'm coming. The, the, the year of the Lord. The year of the Lord. He's coming. The, the one who's anointed to proclaim good news. He's coming. The Bible says that this saving is given specifically not by works but by grace. Not by behavior, but by favor. So none of us can boast that we're something that we're not, or more than we are. It's not about ritual and reward. It's not about doing something to achieve a related payment or gift. Now, sometimes as believers, we can get locked into a pattern of thought that believes that God owes us something, that, that believes that if I just pray enough or read my Bible enough, that God will almost credit to me things. Listen, everything is already credited to you. Everything. Every gift and heavenly blessing is already open to you. It's activated by faith. It's not activated by works. So I want to encourage you believers this morning, stand upon that. Don't think that God's not given you because you haven't worked hard enough. Don't think that God's not given to you because you're just a bit too messed up and he'll sort you out when you're a bit better and you get your head together. That's not the gospel. Don't, don't listen to that lie that false religion tries to throw into true religion by grace and by grace alone. Saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for all mankind and Jesus died for me. But the Bible does also say that faith without works is dead. Pointless. Nothing. Uh, haven't we just read something exactly like this in Isaiah that says, if you do this, then this. If, if you clothe the naked and feed the hungry and provide shelter, then. It does, isn't that works-based? Do this, get this. Loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords, set the oppressed free, break every yoke, share your food, provide shelter, clothe the naked, and then your light will break forth. Then your healing will come. Do this, and then you'll get healed. You're not healed because you're not doing this stuff. Doesn't it look like that? Then your righteousness will go before you. Then God's glory will protect you. And you will call and he will answer. Maybe God's not answering me because, because I'm not doing that stuff. And so I've got to go and find a homeless person and bring him into my house. Because then God will listen to me and God will protect me. He'll be my rear guard. If I do this, God will do that. That's not it. That's false religion. So why is it there in black and white in our Bibles? How do we get from there to Grace. Jesus. Jesus. Because those are requirements. Holiness is a requirement. 
the, the law, God, God instituted the law for a purpose because you cannot be sinless and spotless without observing the law perfectly. So, so in order to have the right into the throne room of grace, in order to have the right to stand and have a relationship with God as a father, you need to fulfill all of that stuff. You need to do this in order to be credited with this. But what did God do to Abraham? He credited faith to him as righteousness. Faith. Abraham was messed up. The Bible goes to great lengths to show that every single person portrayed in Scripture is messed up, apart from one. Great lengths. Jesus. He's fulfilled it on your behalf. He's lived the perfect life. He's satisfied the law on your account. How amazing is that? When you sing Amazing Grace next, think about that. All of these requirements, do this and then get this. Jesus has done that, so you get this. Every requirement already met in Jesus. How's this so? He lived the perfect life for you. He suffered painful, shameful death for us. He's been raised to life for us that we may be raised to new life with him, activated by faith or belief. And upon that activation, made into brand new creations, where the old is gone and the new has arrived. The same skin, different heart. We look the same, but the core has changed. Actually, I don't think we even look the same. I'm not going to get all weird and supernatural on you here, but I know when I got saved, I went to see some Christians because I wasn't sure I'd got saved and I was going to ask them the question. They looked at me in the face before I said a word and they, they said, you got saved. Yeah. <laughs> because they could see it. It was written on my face. The difference, having been in the presence of Jesus, kind of like Moses coming down from the mountain and his face radiates the glory of God. When we encounter Jesus, we radiate him. And we don't have to veil that. Faith produces a response that is constant and consistent if he has done all of this on our behalf and has made us new creations with new hearts, we reflect him in our actions, in our lifestyles, in our caring, open hearts and open homes, not as a religious exercise or requirement, but as an overflow of a transformed life. If you're struggling with the idea of hospitality, if you're struggling with the idea of open hearts and open homes, don't try to force yourself into that like you've got to earn God's favour there. Tell you what you do need to do. It's just say, God, open my eyes. Show me grace. Show me what this means. Make real in my heart the truth that everything that I had to fulfil in order to earn your favour, Jesus has fulfilled on my behalf. So... The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him and anointed him to preach good news. And that good news is that he has come into the world to fulfill everything that you could not. Hallelujah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what God has done for you. Covered. Clothed. How wonderful. So, as I come towards wrapping up, and I, I don't want to rush through this. 
I really struggled with this message this week. I don't know why, because this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and the clock got away from me. That was part of it. Uh, it got to Saturday, where I, I hate writing a message on a Saturday. It's too late. I like to be like at least a few days earlier than that. When I started here, I was two weeks ahead. Now I'm like two days ahead. <laughs> I really wrestled, and I, I really felt I wanted to bring an encouraging word this morning that that I didn't want you to take away that you have to do this, that open hearts and open homes and, and hospitality and, and being all in is about levying like a, a duty upon you. I, I really felt that in my spirit. And as I sat down and, and prayed and as I penned this message yesterday, I was just really struggling. It, no, I, I can't believe I planned to do this message months and months and months ago to go to Isaiah 58 today. And I was like, but it feels like it might be too much. Just one, one too many of those. Come on, guys, let's open up our hearts and open up our homes and be church. Maybe it's just too much. And, and I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, this is too much. What do I do, God? Have I got the wrong message here? Do I need to go back and replan this? Or do I need to just stand up and open my mouth and see what you will pour out? Is it one of those occasions where I stand behind the lectern and realize that God's put something else in my heart? You know what, this morning, a, a couple of, uh, I, I use a couple of apps that early in the morning will just ping a scripture at me. Before I've got out of bed, before I've got the coffee on, before I found a nice comfy seat for my Bible reading, you know, a couple of scriptures just ping at me. And the very first thing that my eyes fell upon today, pinged at me by an independent app provider, was from Isaiah 58. And I just thanked God in that moment and said, I'm just going to trust you this morning that this will be an encouraging word. And that's what I want it to be. I want it to encourage you. I really do. The person who has really encountered Jesus cannot help but, but show evidence of that encounter with him uh, and an ongoing relationship with him. It can't help it. But listen, we're still flawed, but being changed. We're still wrestling with our former selves, but already victorious in Christ. We're still being transformed day by day. If you're perfect now, there's no transformation left. <laughs> so you better watch your step on the way home, because <laughs> he's going to take you home. The reality is that we're, we're only fully... <laughs> Brilliant. Genius. Tedious. Transformed day by day, the evidence of his work in yours. Look, if you're worried this morning that you're not demonstrating the evidence in your life, that, that kind of word from James which sounds harsh, which is that faith without works is dead, that is a verse to call out false religion not averse to burden those who know and love Jesus Christ. And Satan will take that verse, faith without works is dead, and make you think you've got to perform in order to achieve God's grace. That's what Satan does because he's a manipulator. He twists the truth. He takes the truth and he uses it to his advantage. Just like when he was there tempting Jesus, he takes scripture, he knows it better than you know it, and he'll take it and he'll twist it around and try and make you go, oh, well, obviously that means, no. What that verse is saying is that if you've met Jesus, you're going to be different. It's going to happen. It might be slow. It might be fast. It might be subtle. It might be clangingly obvious. You've changed. 
and you are being changed and you will continue to be changed by him not by trying not by trying to be better and if you're punishing yourself right now because you don't feel like you're a good enough Christian stop it stop it because you are hurting yourself and you are putting on yourself something that Satan is manipulating on you, not something that God has put on you himself. Because everything that would have been put on you has been put on Jesus. All of that condemnation, all of that guilt, all of that shame, all of that death and destruction that was headed in your direction was put upon his shoulders. So stop trying. Stop beating yourself up and and also be careful not to beat other people up when they let you down or they fall short of what we think might be the mark of a a believer because we're all messed up, we're all flawed. And if you're worried this morning that you're not demonstrating that evidence in your life, either it's because you know that you're not really his, that you've not really encountered him, and you'll know this for sure, absolute certainty, that you've not surrendered to him, you neither know him nor love him and you're desperately just trying to fit in trying not to stick out like a sore thumb or it's because you do know him and because you do love him and you do care about whether or not you're growing and whilst you're painfully aware of your flaws your limitations and your shame you might possibly feel that you're not growing fast enough or well enough especially if you compare yourself to other people It's a painful place to be. If that's you, if you know and love Jesus, but you beat yourself up, I just want to invite you this morning. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I just want to invite you to lay yourself at at the foot of the cross again. Allow God to wash grace over you, because it's paid. You don't need to strive for his affection or his love. And, And if where you are this morning is that the first thing there was true that you don't know him or love him and you're just trying to fit in I want to invite you this morning to come see the man who already knows everything there is to know about you who has paid on your behalf every error every sin every ounce of shame every drop of guilt every bit of pain it's all been levied upon him so that you go free is it fair? no it's absolutely not fair It's not fair that the only perfect person in history took the punishment of everybody else. That's not fair, but it is grace. Jesus went into that, not not, not comfortably, but gladly, willingly. Yes, take this cup from me, but yet not my will, but yours be done. He's done that for you. Oh Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for that grace. Let it take deep seat in our hearts, God. Remind us afresh today that we don't have to perform like monkeys to be, to be valued in your kingdom, but actually just belief activates the fact that Jesus has done it all. That grace has met us along the road as we've tried to run home. God, you came for us when we were sinners and when we were enemies. You made us alive in Christ. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray if anyone here today needs to know you, that you'd work on their hearts. 
Lord, if anyone here is, is not in a relationship with you this morning, God, I pray that, that you would move upon their hearts, that you would make the gospel attractive to them this morning and, and give them a conviction to come before you and repent and turn and find the wells of living water in your presence. And Lord, where there are believers here, and I know this is very likely this morning, who struggle because they feel they're not good enough and particularly comparing themselves to people around them. Lord, would you wash that away today? Would you wash it away this morning? Would you remind people that it's finished, that it is done, that Jesus has accomplished for us the entirety of the law and credited that to us as righteousness? that we stand in clothes that he has given us, that he has won for us, that he has hewn for us. We thank you, God. Let joy rise in our hearts. We thank you. We glorify you in Jesus' name.